Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we are going to go against the grain for the next couple of hours. John, uh, I have so much stuff that I wanted to talk about <laughs> yesterday that I didn't get a chance to that I've carried over to today. And there's, of course, all of the things that happened over the last 24 hours to get into, including yeah. uh, Liz Cheney's shocking defeat. In you know, we we predicted that almost to the number. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm bragging for us here, almost to the number. Mm-hmm. We were right on. We are going to talk a little bit more about the the. Um, implications of that loss and more the the sort of national implications of Liz Cheney's uh, maybe political future as a darling of centrist Democrats. But I wanted to talk for one second. I just I thought uh, Steve Kornacki, right, NBC, MSNBC political correspondent, Mm -hmm. uh, tweeted out some information about the primary turnout that I thought was pretty interesting. The Republican turnout was up 45 percent from 2018. The Democratic turnout was down 61 percent from 2018. And I mean, I guess there got to be multiple factors happening here. My first thought was, you know, like uh, the sort of pro-Trump, anti-Trump battle might actually really be galvanizing the Republican base. But as you said, John, also, uh, this could also represent a lot of Democratic voters switching their party um, Switching their party membership to vote for Cheney. Yeah, I think that's what it was. I mean. And and you see how it had literally no effect on this race. I mean, she she didn't have a prayer. She was crushed in this primary. And it shows the anger that these Republican voters have in Wyoming uh, because of her willingness to attack President Trump and to take part in the January 6th committee. Yeah, it's really remarkable. Yeah. I want to make sure we don't completely lose uh, a little bit of good news in the shuffle of uh, bad or questionable news. And that's this uh, change by the FDA that will allow the sale of hearing aids over the counter uh, starting as soon as October, I think, is what I saw. Yes. I mean, this is this is great, right? It it is unbelievable what you can buy over the counter in other countries that you have to jump through so many hurdles to get here. Not, you know, starting with, uh, e- even if you have health insurance, sometimes a, a $50, $100 copay Yeah, to yeah, go and get a prescription true. for a hearing aid. Yeah, for a hearing aid. Yeah. You know, the New York Times said, too, that the average hearing aid costs like $4,000 to $6,000, yeah. but you can get them for 1200 bucks at Costco. It's just yeah. that you needed a prescription and yeah. um, insurance companies generally don't cover hearing aids. Yeah. So this and, is you know, and this is this is actually a serious issue to Michelle, because they said that um, hearing loss, especially in the elderly, leads to depression. It leads to feelings of isolation, which then in turn leads to more health problems. This is a big deal. This is important. It is one of these three things I, I happen to see in a headline talking about um, delaying Alzheimer's or, or staving off dementia in general. It was quit j- drinking, protect your hearing, mm-hmm. and uh, and keep up with your reading. And so, yeah, it's going to make it a lot easier for a lot of Americans to uh, in, to continue hearing the people yes. that they love, which really yes. sh- shouldn't be something that there are so many barriers to. That's right. This is very important. 
The other thing that caught my eye this morning, and I just thought of this in light of our conversations um, over the course of this week about Afghanistan, but uh, the State Department made a little statement bragging about its contribution to the World Food Program and particularly to uh, getting shipments of Ukrainian grain to, in this case, the Horn of Africa. They sent out this uh, press release saying the U.S. government is going to contribute more than $68 million to support the procurement, transport, and storage of 150,000 metric tons of wheat to address acute food insecurity. Uh, They are going to send this to the Horn of Africa, where a historic drought is pushing millions of people to the brink of starvation. And I just saw this and thought, okay, I can think of another country that could use some, uh, some money uh, way more money than this 68 million that we're bragging about right now that is also facing uh, acute hunger. Of course, thinking about Afghanistan, but no, no, no. The U.S. couldn't possibly release any of that funding to this government that we want to punish Afghans right. for having. And instead, we're going to give, uh, you know, paltry 68 million to the World Food Program to basically to, to buy this grain from Ukraine. So this is another right. way that we are supporting Ukraine. Um, and try to get other countries to support the UN to get aid to Afghanistan, but not, of course, with Afghans' own money. Right. You know, I remember the first time I went to Yemen, they were struggling with um, with a famine, and um, a whole bunch of countries around the world pulled together and sent shiploads of, of food and grain and, you know, flour and corn and stuff like that. And we had sent so little that what the Yemenis did to put us on the spot to embarrass us is they, in the papers, they listed all of the countries that had made donations and how much the value was of their donations. And I still remember after all these years, we ranked 14th. We were behind you know, like Denmark and the Netherlands and all these little teeny tiny countries. They had all given more than we had. I mean, that used to be exactly the same case in, in Laos when it comes to oh. mining clearance. There was a time when New, New Zealand was giving way more money than the United New States Zealand. to help clear uh, Lao rice paddies and, and jungles and forests of uh, unexploded munitions and cluster bombs. And of course, oh the country God. most responsible for, for bombing Lao yeah. uh, was absolutely the United States, right? Uh, the most bombed country in the world in that undeclared war. So yeah, I, I think that um, it was Obama who finally started to reverse that and put more serious money toward uh, demining Lao. But I mean, decades after the fact, right? Long over yeah. Shame. Let me ask you something, John. Mm-hmm. I know you're aware of courthouse news. Yes. What do you What do you look at courthouse news for? Uh, you know, when there's an interesting um, ongoing case, I check out courthouse news. They they cover whistleblower cases very very closely, mm-hmm. and they've called me I don't know half a dozen times over the years for a for a quote. But they're usually good in cases where the mainstream media is just kind of not paying attention. Yeah, I I mean, of course, I'm aware of courthouse news and I go to courthouse news for uh, courthouse news. Exactly. And so, you know, forgive me, I may be slow to come to this, but to to this idea that courthouse news is covering all kinds of other topics, including, you know, foreign policy, and international relations. And so I was kind of caught by surprise. I saw this woman um, 
you could tell she was sharing this this story on social media and had on Twitter basically taken the equivalent of a deep breath and gone, okay. I'm going to say, I think this was a good story and very brave to put out. And it's a courthouse news story interviewing this French um, Russia expert who is the head of the Institute for European, Russian and Eurasian Studies at George Washington University, saying it's time for the West to reflect upon its role in creating the conditions for for the war in Ukraine wow. and that you know pretending NATO has nothing to do with it and pretending you know that that there there wasn't sort of decades of of build up in the making to this conflagration is really silly and it was it's just a surprisingly um thoughtful yeah and i think smart piece on how how we got here uh, and lamenting the fact that we can't talk about, you know, that it starts off by saying it's become a taboo to bring up the role of NATO and the yeah. harm done by yeah. decades of Russia bash- bashing as causes for the outbreak of war in Ukraine. And you can get labeled a traitor and an apologist for Russian yeah. Pla- President Vladimir Putin. Yeah, and which which we have. Yes. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have to agree with you. You know, when you when you first flagged this for me, I thought courthouse news. I, it wouldn't even have occurred to me. Mm-hmm. To go to courthouse news looking for a story like this, it mm-hmm. was very thoughtful and uh, and well executed. Yeah, so so good on him for you know giving a platform to someone who is is an expert, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a subject matter expert to say we if we you know if we want to be serious about ending this conflict and avoiding them in the future, we should be clear eyed about how we got here, which is not just that Vladimir Putin woke up one morning. Uh, with, you know, without any kind of larger context and chose violence. Yes. And I think it also reminded me, John, I think, I don't know what the context was that we were talking about um, CNN reporters going overseas and discovering different kinds of toilets. But one of the examples <laughs> that this article cites is um, that the, the United States has just sort of ignored the reality on the ground in Russia for a long time. And yeah. so part of what happened after Vladimir Putin came to power was to really focus on uh, this d- drift toward authoritarianism and ignore uh, good things that were happening. Mm -hmm. And she uses as an example, Russia's hosting of the 2018 world cup, which was considered to be very successful, which got praise from Europe and Latin America for managing, uh, this enormous sporting event. And she noted that American media accounts of the world cup were extremely negative. And that's when I remembered, of course it was in Sochi. It was in Sochi that a CNN reporter discovered a squat toilet and acted like, you know, he had come upon like this, the skeleton of Lucy or something, you know what I mean? It yeah, was just like, right. how do people live this way? Right. It was an absolute embarrassment. And so thank also thank you to courthouse news for reminding me I was in Kazakhstan, I think during, uh, at that time, was I, had I just left? Can't remember. I, I think I was in Kazakhstan, uh, and, uh, was just laughing at, uh, how ridiculous it was. I have a friend who ran for Congress this year, uh, in California and he's an immigrant from India. Uh, he came over to this country, uh, at the age of five and he had never seen a sit toilet where mm-hmm. you sit on it to go to the bathroom. They only had squat toilets when he was uh, living in India. And he said that until he was in seventh grade, he would squat on the toilet seat. Yeah. And finally, his mother took him to the pediatrician, you know, for a checkup and and mentioned, you know, he can't sit 
on the toilet. He still squats on the on the sit down toilet. And the pediatrician told him not to worry about it, that it's healthier to squat anyway. That we're is. the we're the ones that get it wrong. Now they sell these little <laughs> stools for you to put your feet on when you sit down on one of our dumb water wasting toilets. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. and when I was in Guatemala, I was talking to this kid at the orphanage that I was volunteering at, and uh, he had just come back from the United States. And I said, oh, was this your first trip to the United States? He was 16 or 17. And he said, yeah. I said, well, what were your impressions? And he said, you have so much clean water that you poop in it. Yeah. He couldn't believe it. It's pretty, it's pretty gross. Yeah. I want to make sure before we move on, I, I want to mention this story from the Wall Street Journal earlier this week that is maybe stating the obvious, but I think it's worth stating. Um, it talked about how inflation is uh, widening the gulf between single people and married people in the United mm-hmm. States. Mm-hmm. And it notes that the median net worth of married couples between 25 and 34 years old was nearly nine times as much as the median net worth of single households in 2019. Oh, my God. In 2010, married households median net worth was four times as much. Right. So it's only it's more than doubled in uh, those nine years. And undoubtedly, inflation is accelerating that gap. And so it's saying, you know, what we all know is happening. If you don't have somebody to share uh, expenses with, it's extremely expensive to live in the United States. Uh, These are the years when you are when you're like forming households and pooling your income. Uh, It also notes that housing affordability in June hit its worst level since June 1989. Home prices are up 44 percent over the last two years. Mm -hmm. We've talked about how much rent has risen. Um, in, in across the country in all markets. And it just, again, I feel like it is worth pointing out uh, that what this stories like these show is that this society that we consider to be like the, the land of so many choices, yeah. right? The land of freedom and choices, and you can choose to do whatever you want. Sure. You can choose all of those things as long as you also choose to get married Choose to be constantly employed mm-hmm. at a large company so you can have health insurance. Choose never to spend very much time out of the country and thus not pay into your social security so you're not choosing to die in poverty in old mm-hmm. age. So as long as you choose to stay exactly between the gutters, and I mean, th- this is the case for your professional choices as well as your your personal choices, right? Don't you dare choose to be a single person. Because you won't be able to afford to live under most cases. So as long as you stay exactly between those lanes, you know, the world is your oyster. If you also have the right education and the right career and you don't get sick at the wrong time. But if you step slightly off the beaten path, you know, you you can choose all you want, but you're ultimately what you, you yeah, you are going to, you're not only going to pay for it, you're just never going to be able to have anything for the rest of your life, you know? It's true. And I think it's worth pointing this out. There is like this idea that we are swamped by choice. It, 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 we just have 20 different sodas you can buy. That's not the same mm-hmm. as truly having the freedom of choice when it comes to what kind of life you want to live. Yes. So true. I, I, like I, I couldn't agree more. You know, <laughs> There was an article in the Los Angeles Times yesterday talking about housing prices. Housing prices are up astronomically in Southern California to the point where for the very first time ever, the median home price is over a million dollars. Well, 
I mean, you have to be making $300,000 a year to afford a million dollar home. And that would Mm -hmm. even be a stretch. Yeah. Uh, Especially with property taxes being as high as they are in Southern California. So rather than see housing prices come down like they saw there during the Great Recession, 2008, 2009, Mm -hmm. it said people are deciding to just take their houses off the market and wait it out because Mm -hmm. they don't want to risk making less money on the houses. And what that's doing, consequently, is it's putting real estate out of reach permanently for young people and for low- and middle-income people in Southern California. They'll never own real estate. Never. Yeah. And then your life is precarious until you die, right? If you can never accumulate any kind of wealth, you can never accumulate any kind of security. And this is, you know, this is what you get unless you are very lucky and make all of the choices that you are supposed to make. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's right. Anyway, we got to take a break here. Uh, I want to come back and talk about, we're going to talk about uh, the president of Turkey visiting Ukraine. We're going to talk about Israel and Turkey uh, normalizing relations and perhaps hand in hand airstriking Syria. Jolly kumbaya (laughs) story there. We are going to talk a little bit more about uh, the love affair between the media and FBI that we have been witnessing over the last week. We are going to talk about a crisis in public education, teacher shortage, not to mention some other issues. So there's a lot coming up. Stick with us here to hear it all. You're listening to Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, and we are taking a look now at Turkey, Ukraine, Syria, and Israel, which is a an explosive combination if I have ever heard one. Yeah, seriously. Joining us for these conversations is Dennis Rogatuk. He's a writer, journalist, and researcher. He's written for Green Left Weekly, Telesur, International Viewpoint, Tribune, lots of other publications. We often talk to him about Latin America because that's where he's based, but he is an analyst on a number of other subjects. So, Dennis, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Michelle. And also to add the international director of Alcidolano Media Platform. Oh, great. Um, uh, I want to talk about this trip by the U.S. Secretary General uh, Antonio Guterres and Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who are traveling to Ukraine to meet President Volodymyr Zelensky. They are going to meet in Lviv, uh, and Guterres is also apparently going to go to Odessa. The visit follows the agreement, brokered in part by Turkey, to restart grain shipments through the Black Sea. But Guterres is also saying he's going to stress the need for a political solution to the conflict, as well as the need to solve this ongoing crisis over the Zaporizhia nuclear plant. And Turkey would very much like to be a facilitator of that political solution. And I have to say, as as much criticism as we have for Erdogan on this show, Turkey has also so far been, I think, the only successful mediator between Russia and Ukraine, uh, helping, you know, hosting I think the only talk so far where they've actually sat down and talked to each other, uh, successfully helping to broker this this grain deal. So 
How significant do you think this meeting could be? And is Erdogan maybe going to get another opportunity to play peacemaker here? Well, Michelle, I think it's better to start off with uh, actually analyzing Turkey's role in this conflict. And mediator wouldn't exactly be a label that I would put on Turkey, uh, since uh, Turkey has actually been one of the countries that has profited the, the most out, uh, mm-hmm. out of this conflict uh, through the sale of military, technolo- military technology to both Ukraine and, uh, and, and to Russia. Uh, particularly in the case of Ukraine, they've been selling the uh, uh, Baikatar, Drones, I believe that's I believe that's mm-hmm. the pronunciation, and other military equipment. While at the same time, making gas and oil purchases uh, from Russia, and also switching to the ruble, uh, so the ruble payments mm-hmm. payment system, and their position, their geographical position is kind of kind of almost like this bridge uh, between uh, Europe and. Uh, and Asia actually also also made them incredibly uh, well put, put them in an extremely profitable uh, position. At the same time, Turkey, of course, whilst being a NATO member, did, hasn't actually uh, hasn't actually implemented any sanctions on Russia uh, either, and actually well welcomed Russian tourists as it always uh, uh, does. So I think when we look at it in this in this context, uh, Erdogan's role in this is is really I would say less much less of a mediator and much more as the you know kind of the owner the owner of a of a huge marketplace. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, this, I think that uh, on this marketplace we found uh, we have you know, we have weapons and of course we have the you know this this possibility of of peace and negotiation. I believe that uh, Erdogan really, uh, really aims to, uh, you know, solidify his uh, solidify his legacy, his, pos- his position as a, um, as kind of kind of kind of the ma- the man who, uh, well, some, uh, the man who perhaps yeah, in the future will be credited as brokering the peace, but also someone who, at the time of the conflict, you know, placed Turkey in the most advantageous position uh, that it that it could have uh, been in. So. Uh, yeah. No, I think that's a really good point. I mean, and maybe it almost, maybe it in a weird way helps, right? I mean, Erdogan has made no, um, very few concessions that are uh, against Turkey's interest. As you say, he's making money from all sides in this conflict. But in a way, he's so openly um, interested in profiting in any way possible that maybe that make it, 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 it see, Erdogan doesn't have to hide his uh, desire to do what's in Turkey's best interest in a way that might make him, you know, a more transparent interlocutor to some degree, uh, ironically. The other question I have about any possible peace deal is whether we even should be talking about a deal if the U.S. is not involved. Um, There has been some question as to how much Zelensky could even agree to without the U.S. go-ahead. But we have also been seeing gentle attempts by the United States to distance itself, even if just a little bit, from the Zelensky government in Ukraine. And so I wonder if, as we see some of this distancing happening, we should also see the Ukrainian government taking a little bit of authority back in this conflict, which means maybe I could have a little bit more uh, authority to make some deals without, you know, Uncle Sam standing in the background. Mm-hmm. Well, Michelle, I think that uh, the strategy of the Western countries, that you know, United States, UK, European Union, has really been like you know this this push and pull uh, sort of so, uh, sort of thing. So, uh, I remember back in <clears throat> back around the, um, 
March, April of, of this year, sort of uh, during the first uh, phases of the, uh, of the of the conflict. Uh, during the first, you know, meetings uh, between between Ukraine and Russian delegations, there were serious talks about uh, ending this this conflict uh, based on based on the conditions of you know uh, Ukraine. Um, uh, basically, 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 Ukraine, 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 joining NATO, uh, uh, you know, not host, not hosting any of the any foreign troops. Uh, Ukraine's recognition of Crimea as Russian territory. Ukraine's recognition of Donbass, Donbass, and so on, and and so so forth. But then in April, we we suddenly see this this sort of almost like a 180 degree uh, turnaround by the Zelensky government, which coincided. Uh, with the visits by Western leaders, most prominently uh, Boris Johnson and uh, other other European leaders, and then eventually, of course, uh, Joe Biden. And after this, like the tone of the Ukrainian government changed radically. After this, they uh, they went they went from you know acknowledging that they won't join NATO, they you know possibly possibly recognizing Crimea, and they went to saying that they they will live they will this war will only end with the liberation of all the occupied of the so-called occupied territories. Uh, which included which included uh, Crimea. Uh, now, during this time, as I, as I said, uh, Ukrainian government was was being influenced, was greatly influenced, and pushed, uh, you know, all, in, into this uh, further into this uh, uh, conflict uh, with the promises of the delivery of you know, uh, latest uh, military technology, delivery of uh, arms, ammunition, financial help uh, by the NATO bloc. And uh, of course, this was done with the, you know, with the idea and with the with, with the idea in mind that uh, Russian military strategy had failed, and that you know the the Russian forces that the Russian forces in uh, Ukraine have now suffered way too, uh, way too many casualties that they are not they are no longer capable of launching a new major a new major offensive, and that a uh, and, that, and that effectively a um, a military victory over over Russia was was possible before the end of summer. Now, as we've seen now, now that we're arriving into into August, we are now seeing that you know this strategy by the Western countries had also had also failed. So, in a way, the I say the distancing that we are now starting to see on the part of the United States government, on the part of the German government, on the part of the French government, and some of the other major uh, countries, you know, this this distancing is obviously as a, as a sign of of you know of their own failure in Ukraine, so they're now starting to realize that you know no matter you know, no matter how how many uh, you know hundreds of millions of, of sorry, billions of dollars that they pour into the country uh, with you know through through, uh, through arms ammunition through uh, through new te- through new technology uh, this conf- this conflict cannot uh, cannot be won in in a foreseeable future without uh, without an extreme or radical radical change on the geopolitical sphere, which mm-hmm. would involve uh, something along the lines of, you know, China also turning against uh, Russia in some way, which, of course, mm-hmm. we know is extremely unlikely to happen. Right, right. Um, something that might have seemed unlikely to happen a, a little while ago, today Israel and Turkey have fully normalized relations, ending a four-year downgrade. At least that's that's the most recent crisis. Um, Israel also had hoped to have some kind of mediating role in the Ukraine conflict a few months ago, but uh, the caretaker governor now, uh, government now probably doesn't need to nurture any more ambitions and just holding things together until November. 
Um, but I wonder what changes we should expect to see with Israel and Turkey back now formally in each other's good graces and wonder uh, if, you know, Syria in particular should be bracing itself. It, uh, if this uh, mending of relations between Turkey and Israel does come at a, uh, say it was a very interesting uh, point in the Syrian conflict, as uh, we're seeing, uh, as we uh, as we are seeing, uh, you know, a greater, uh, you know, as a greater amount of discord, particularly the great amount of discord between the Kurdish uh, autonomous uh, government in in the north or or, or or Rojava and the Syrian and the Syrian government of uh, of, Bashar, of Bashar al-Assad. Now, of course, as, now of course, as we know, uh, uh, Turkish Turkish occupation of of, north, of northern Syria does not sit well with the Syrian government. It does not sit well with uh, uh, with the Russian government uh, as well. Mm-hmm. In a way, I would say so. So I would so in a way, I would say that uh, Tur- Turkey and Israel you know, taking steps to uh, taking steps to, man- to mending their to mending their relations. Uh, could actually signal, could actually signify that Israel is giving green light to Turkey. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, uh, Syria, Israel is giving green light to Turkey in Syria to basically continue its uh, occupation and perhaps in perhaps in some ways, uh, Israel, uh, Israel, Israel supporting Turkey's ambitions through its, uh, you know, through its constant attacks against uh, against the Syrian the Syrian government. Mm-hmm. Uh, since we, we are, you know, every single week there is a, there is a, there is some kind of a bombing, uh, some uh, somewhere by Israel, on the on the Syrian territory, usually targeting, uh, you know, military uh, installations, but also, but also these these these, these attacks happen in major cities such as uh, Damascus, uh, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so Syria recognizes uh, Turkish ambitions in the in the region, and uh, Turkey would mo- would I would say likely, uh, uh, likely, but uh, be- will likely begin to kind of decrease any of the other any help or assistance that it has it still has to the Palestinian cause. Mm-hmm. One thing Michelle you mentioned that with Israel be trying to be a mediator in Russia in the, sorry, in the in the Ukrainian conflict Th- that. Israel itself also also actually also tried to play you know this uh, uh, this role of the black market dealer to both to both sides to both Ukraine and and Russia since um, uh, but I, I believe it, it did not uh, succeed uh, since um, uh, I believe Israel Israel was Israel did eventually I believe put sanctions uh, on Russia and uh, curiously enough Zelensky himself in a few interviews had said that. His plan is actually to, t- to turn Ukraine into a, into a greater version of Israel. So, in a way, in, in a really strange way, Israel—it's mm. not really Israel's military assistance or economic or commercial assistance to Ukraine. Rather, it's it's Israel's uh, political system and uh, the state uh, itself that's you know that seems to be providing as inspiration to Zelensky in this conflict. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was Turkey had announced earlier this year that it was going to launch a new offensive against uh, Kurdish fighters in northern Syria, and it had been um, dissuaded for a few months from launching it with pressure, apparently coming from, among other quarters, from Israel via the United States. And so Erdogan had allowed himself to be persuaded to postpone this uh, offensive that he said would come at some point. And it sort of put it on hold. But over the weekend, as you say, 
Uh, we saw more Israeli airstrikes on Syria, of course, on what Israel calls Iranian bases in the country. And then just yesterday, Turkey carried out an airstrike in Syria that killed it depends on where you look, it killed either 11 people or 22 people, but all agree it was not only Kurdish fighters killed in this strike, uh, but Syrian government forces. Uh, and so, you know, it's to sort of uh, restate what you've already said, it could, it does seem like perhaps um, this is Turkey maybe beginning this long-awaited offensive and not taking too much care as to whether it's killing uh, Syrian government forces or the Kurdish forces it's supposed to be targeting. That, yes, uh, yes, uh, I do agree with that. So, and while uh, we, I could also add that you know while the world is distracted with the, with the Ukraine with the conflict in Ukraine with the you know the tensions uh, with, with Taiwan, uh, mm-hmm. this sort of thing presents a great opportunity to uh, to, to, to add a, to add a gun. Of course, of course, uh, you know launching a full-on offensive against uh, northern uh, Syria would still be would still be, be quite pro- problematic uh, with regards to you know Turkey's relations uh, with Russia. Since a great part of a great part of the uh, territories territory in northern Syria is administered by both the Syrian government and by and, and by the Kurdish uh, autonomous government. Now, uh, Russia Russia also main, still maintains its presence uh, in Syria. It still maintains you know the support uh, for the for the Syrian government military the military support. Uh, so I be, so I believe that. Um, Another another reason why he's why Erdogan has been dissuaded against it uh, is what, what I, I would say also the pressure coming from from Moscow uh, on uh, on this. But uh, perhaps uh, you know you know it, it, it is it is it is a bit a bit of a strange time right now for 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 Erdogan to uh, uh, to launch this offensive uh, in in the north, considering considering that he's actually been been mending the relations. Uh, uh, with, with Russia. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The other thing that I wanted to ask you about while we are talking about Syria is uh, there were also rocket strikes in Syria in the last couple days on a base housing U.S. soldiers, right? Lest we forget that American soldiers are still in that country. Yep. And over the past couple weeks, there have also been multiple reports that are never picked up by major American media uh, about tankers of Syrian oil being taken from northeastern Syria to U.S. bases in Iraq. Uh, This reporting comes from Syrian state media, and sometimes you will see uh, another independent source or two reporting the same thing. Uh, Xinhua picked up this particular story. But I wanted to just, you know, ask your thoughts on why there is there's so little reporting on the U.S. presence in Syria these days. There's no reporting on what exactly is happening in those oil fields that the U.S. has control over. And so I wonder if you can talk about, you know, maybe you can shed some light on what is actually going on there or talk about why it is so difficult to get any confirmed information in English about this uh, this country and this oil that we are sitting on top of. Well, I think that the, the kind of news and the kind of footage that we actually managed to get out of that region recently has actually been uh, the, the footage of, uh, you know, U.S. US uh, military convoys transporting oil from, north, from northern Syria uh, I believe uh, I believe that then uh, through Iraq, so effectively, you know, effectively, effectively in a way, you know, fulfilling uh, their uh, their promise and and their, their dream of taking of taking control of the you know natural resources of the of the Levant of the Levant uh, region, 
for themselves. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's yeah, you know, but it, it has always been difficult to get uh, confirmed information from uh, from you know war torn areas uh, such as north, such as uh, northern Syria or the Kurdish uh, or the Kurdish region uh, or, or Iraq. Mm-hmm. I believe, but I, but I also but I also believe that. Um, uh, in, many, in many ways, a lot of these news would often would also often be, uh, you know, either either censored or attacked as, as propaganda coming from, say, the Syrian government, as propaganda of the Iranian government or the Russian government, or so on and so forth. So we've uh, so the, the kind of the kind of narrative that you know that U.S. is actually is stealing oil uh, from uh, from from Syria is. Um, it, this this kind of this kind of narrative is as it completely contradicts you know the the narrative that had been that we that have been pushing that has been pushed by the corporates and mainstream media over the last was it t- ten years now you know mm-hmm. the Syrian mission and sorry the United States mission in Syria was in support of the, of the Kurds against the, Isla, the Islamic terrorists you know mm-hmm. it's uh, or, or or it is it is in support of the of the Syrian rebels against the um, what they call the bloodthirsty dictator uh, Bashar al-Assad, mm-hmm. and resources—you know—the the theft of natural resources would naturally would, would never come into would never come into this uh, conversation because, as we know, United States intervention has always been of, on humanitarian grounds. Right, of course. <laughs> nothing, <laughs> nothing more, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I was just going to say on humanitarian grounds, right? Yeah, what we love to do is come into a country on humanitarian grounds and just leave it a sort of bitterly uh, divided, fractured country governed by different factions. And the FT has this uh, had a story out a couple of days ago about asking what Turkey's end goal in Syria is. But it has a map of Syria showing approximate areas of influence. And you can see a big chunk of the Northeast. It's uh, you know, governed by the Kurdish People's Protection Units, but you've got little dots of American um, forces in there. You have, of course, a big chunk of the country that is under the control of the Syrian government. Then you have all these little areas that are, you know, uh, ISIS, uh, um, YPG presence, other other non-state armed groups, Turkish control. But the funny part, John, I don't know if you have any insight into this, just down there in uh, this sort of southern Syria, there's just this big circle that says U.S. declared exclusion zone that is uh, occupied by other non-state armed groups. And we're all just supposed to go, uh, oh, well, but no idea who that is or what we're doing there. But I guess this is a fine state to leave a country in. My God. And then, you know, we deny that we're allied with Al-Qaeda. In Syria. I mean, that's what I'm thinking. Is that because my first thought, of course, is like, oh, well, all right, there's a, the, the, uh, we've got some allies there, uh, you know, oper- watching oil fields or wheat fields. But my understanding is that's all in the northeast of the country. So this is just another mystery yeah. area of Syria that's been blocked off for some group other than the Syrian government. And, uh, and that's fine. That's a fine humanitarian intervention on the part of the United States. Oh yes. Uh, well, I, I think that yeah. I think that uh, well, particularly I say in the reference to that, uh, say that you know that spot on on the Syrian map. Uh, you know when they say, uh, I kind of kind of I kind of doubt when they say you know non-military actors in a mm-hmm. in a military in what is obviously a military conflict. Uh, also, from what I understood, a uh, great uh, part of this is also are also kind of kind of the remnants of the of the Free Syrian Army. 
which which have uh, maintained links with the CIA, maintained links with uh, with the U.S. And you know that part of the Free Syrian Army, which did not eventually you know join up, link up with Turkey, did not eventually link up with the other Islamist groups, but mm-hmm. eff- but but effectively kind of established themselves as a as a kind of a, kind of the the Syrian the, um, the Syrian version of Blackwater, if you right. think so. Basically, a mercenary, a mercenary group in the service of the uh, service of the CIA. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's a little Blackwater zone. Anyway, I just thought that was a, exactly. a, a good visual reminder of, uh, you know, with the results of, of this kind of humanitarian intervention as a country that, you know, uh, actively at war just sort of permanently, right, and divided into different factions. And uh, if you're comfortable with this, uh, okay, you have a different moral compass than I do. That was Dennis Rogatuk. Dennis, uh, do you want to tell our listeners where they can go to find more of your work? Uh, yes. Uh, so, uh, as I mentioned before, the, I'm the international director of the El Sulano Media, and so that's so in Spanish. Uh, that's uh, that's where you find most of my publications. So it's www.elsulano.com. Uh, also find me on Twitter at Dennis uh, Rogatyuk. That's R O G A T Y U K. And uh, as mentioned. Uh, uh, my um, English language publications uh, have kind of, been sort of spread over a whole different uh, range of media platforms, which includes uh, Jacobin, Tribune, Grey Zone, Le Bon Salev, The Counterpunch, so mm. a, whole, a whole bunch. All right. And now hopefully next time we can talk to you about what is going on in Nicaragua and uh, get an update on some other events in Latin America. But that was Dennis Rogatuk. Always great to talk to you, Dennis. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back to talk about some domestic politics. Stay tuned. where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte, here with John Kiriakou, getting ready to talk about Democratic darling Liz Cheney. Uh, We'll talk about how upside down our domestic politics have become, and we're going to try to get into what exactly is going on in San Francisco and in L.A., where the police were called last week to a city council meeting Mm -hmm. uh, where people were just trying to protest, you know, the further criminalization of homelessness. Joining us for all of this is Tina Desiree Berg. She's host of the podcast District 34, and she's a reporter for Status Coup. Tina, thanks for being here. Absolutely. Always happy to be with you guys. Let's talk about Liz Cheney trying to ride her crushing defeat in the Wyoming Republican primary to a presidential bid, which is not a sentence that would make any sense if there was any principle in our uh, two-party political system. Right. Cheney was not surprised at this loss and apparently at 2 a.m. yesterday converted her House Campaign Finance Committee to a federal leadership political action committee. She went on this morning to confirm on the morning show that she is indeed uh, exploring a presidential bid. She's already been meeting with anti-Trump Republicans. She got a million dollars just a couple days ago from Texas donors alone, including George Bush and Karl Rove, and the Washington Post in a story 
earlier this week cited another Republican campaign advisor as saying, sure, we, we could be persuaded to toss 10 or $20 million uh, Liz Cheney's way. You know, she needed it to get something going. But the thing is that Liz Cheney is not Ron DeSantis, right? Liz Cheney is right. not coming up to beat Trump and get the Republican vote. She couldn't even do that in a Wyoming primary. So this is going to be raising money for Liz Cheney to court Democrats, right? And this is already a courtship that's been going on for a while. And so I wanted to just get your thoughts on the way Liz Cheney is being treated by Democrats, by uh, Democratic-leaning mainstream media, and, uh, you know, how seriously we should take her as, as, you know, giving centrist Democrats the opportunity to finally realize their dreams of just voting for a Republican already. All right. That's, well, that's definitely part of the conversation. But, you know, interestingly enough, I've been saying for quite a while that Liz Cheney was going to run for president. So none of this last night shocked me. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily because she's been trying to make an appeal to the centrist. It's because she had a large war chest go after Harriet Hageman, and she wasn't spending the money. Uh Uh As of yesterday, she had almost $10 million in that war chest. And if she was very serious about trying to retain that, she would have been spending that down. That wasn't happening. Mm -hmm. It was going to happen. And I think part and parcel to that, realized that she was not going to hold on to that and it's not just because of the January 6th committee hearings, right? It's not just because she's, uh, you know, said that Trump did not win that election and serving our system is more important than party uh, party politics, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, during the Nixon era, we had plenty of Republicans that weren't okay with what Nixon did. We have a very politicized system now, and everybody's engaged in all kinds of crazy team sports. Mm-hmm. But I also think the other part of that a conversation is you don't see her as one of them. We're, so this is like the neoconservative wing of the party. This is the Dick Cheney's, uh, you know, which that group that Liz is a part of versus the right wing populist not in line with each other. I do think she's mistaken about believing that she is going to have centrist Democrats vote for her. I don't think that's happening. A lot of the dialogue surrounding Liz Cheney is that they appreciate her integrity they appreciate her sense of character, the fact that she was willing to stand up to what she thought was wrong based on principle. Mm-hmm. The fact of the matter is she has voted with Trump 93% of the time. Her, mm-hmm. only sin, her only sin is this, which is kind of where we are at in crazy land in the country. Mm-hmm. I mean, there does also seem to be a sort of appetite. As you say, it's not, it's, it's about, um, being able to project this idea that what you want to do is save our institutions, right? And it's not a right thing or a left thing or whatever. And it seems like Andrew Yang and his new forward party uh, is also trying to capitalize on this idea that people want something different. And let's not actually talk about different um, principles, right, or actually different ends of the political spectrum. And God forbid any kind of solution coming from the left wing. Let's just put a different label on it and see what happens and give people the same old thing. And I, I wonder if you also see like some, some echoes between those two. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the platonomy is going to platonomy and that the wealthy elites in this country, not just in this country, in the world, cross party lines they exist on both the right and the left. And they do agree on a lot of things. The areas where they agree are the ones that are most, um, you know, terrible for the working class in the world, right? So none of that is shocking. And it makes perfect sense. It's completely on brand for the neoconservatives and the populace at this point. 
And of course, speaking of, um, you know, plutonomies, plutonomying and dynasties, I wanted to ask you just very quickly about this speculation um, that Nancy Pelosi might resign at the end of this Congress, which would trigger a snap election that it seems like her daughter would then maybe have an advantage in if she wants to step in uh, for a very abbreviated campaign with some really great name recognition. And so I wonder if you think we could actually be at the very beginning of a Pelosi dynasty in California. God, I hope not. Can I just... It's insane that the United States of America has what I would call political aristocracy. And it's not just with Pelosi. We have decades on both the right and the left voters automatically supporting, mm-hmm. you know, members of the same family for different, you know, political party offices. And it's crazy that this is the case. So, you know, um, Pelosi is a little bit more progressive than her mother is. They are definitely part of the platonomy. You know, coming up this month, actually, next week, is uh, Pelosi has an annual Democratic Party fundraising weekend that she does in Napa Valley her estate. She has a large estate up there. And also they utilize, obviously, different various restaurants for events and whatnot. But, you know, part of why she's in the position that she's in isn't because she's good at governing for her constituency. It's because she's a very good fundraiser. That's why the Democratic Party values her. So, you know, again, this is just one more example of the Democratic Party not getting the problem or getting it and choosing to ignore it. They can't serve two masters. Either you're going to serve the interests of the working class and you're going to support the unionization efforts and whatnot, or you're going to continue to kowtow to the, you know, 1% that funds the things that you want to take money for. So, I mean, it, it's just bad. It, it, the people losing out are the constituents. Yeah, every time. Um, finally, let me ask you, uh, we have talked to you over the past couple of years about the various efforts underway in L.A. to crack down viciously on that city's um, homeless population. And now I, I started noticing these reports last week about um, activists being targeted, uh, activists coming to complain at the L.A. City Council about being targeted and harassed by police, only to be confronted by police at the city council. And, and part of what I'm seeing is... Um, a bone of contention here is a new law that would prohibit homeless encampments at libraries, freeway overpasses, and other locations. That had um, generated quite a lot of um, antipathy, right? People were upset about that law. They took to the city council to to voice their protests. And then you ended up having the cops come into the city council and tell everybody to disperse. So what, what is happening in L.A. where they are accusing their um, homeless advocates of being like January 6th rioters and uh, calling in the cops to evict people from uh, the city's institutions? Right. So now this is actually, believe it or not, the second time that this has happened where the police have shut down a city council meeting due to protesters in the in the room. So 40, uh, the bill the bill that's at base here is 4118, right? So we had actually talked about this bill a couple months ago. This is the bill that they initially had that had um, certain areas you couldn't camp in. It's an anti-camping bill. So next to uh, freeway overpasses, on-ramps, parks, like there's a whole list of things and it's basically an attempt to outlaw homelessness, in my opinion. What was happening at this particular meeting is they are expanding existing laws. So, so this is 4118 on, you know, supercharged on cocaine, if, if you want to have it a certain way. So it's now 500 feet that it's expanded to, and they've added certain areas. Now they've pretty much redlined anywhere between, depending on what part of L.A. you're in, 20% to 50% of the city has now been redlined for homeless encampments. So... Um, 
outrageous that this is what they're doing versus actually addressing the root causes of why we have this homeless problem to begin with. But this is what's happening. So activists have been showing up to the city council, and it's wild to see so many city council members just responding with the most insanely um, let-them-eat-cake attitude towards not only the homeless problem, but also the activists and protesters that are there in City Hall. I think Nuri Martinez, you know, more than once was telling people to grow up, acting like children. So just really bad behavior, in my opinion. Not a good way to address your constituency. At one point, I thought it was pretty pretty funny. One of the activists actually came up to the podium and started going through so many of the city council members. We just had a primary election here, and several of them took a beating. So he was bringing that up. You know, uh, Beth Mejia, who is running for city controller, completely dominated that race. Uh, you know, you had unions in uh, the district over here that completely obliterated Gil Cedillo. Hugo Martinez beat uh, Mitchell Farrell. So you could just go down the list where the progressives that are uh, fighting against in their primary campaigns, fighting against some of these bills, including 40, uh, 4118, were winning their election. So it was sort of egg on your face moment. But uh, what happened is, is one of the activists uh, stepped over the front of, I guess it's like this uh, little half wall wooden barrier there. So that's where the, the public gallery is supposed to stay there. You're not supposed to come forward past that. Well, unless you're at the podium speaking, well, she stepped over it. So the police came out. Nuri shut down the meeting. Uh, she restarted the meeting about an hour later for them to finish their business without the public inside the room. But this is just, you know, wash. And reality is, is you cannot pay rent in the city of LA off of $15 an hour. Yeah, the average rent is 2400 for a small place. That's not even a big place. That's either a studio or a very small one-bedroom apartment. I mean, this is crazy. Either they learn to address the problems or we're going to see more of this, I think. Yeah. And it really seems unfair to now be able to um, accuse anyone who wants to show up, who wants to participate, who's angry, justifiably angry about, yeah, being told uh, to, to find some crusts of bread to, to chew on, but better not chew on them on, under an overpass or whatever. And to be accused of, you know, trying to subvert democracy and, uh, you know, be, being a January 6th type rioter. And yet this seems to be, you know, the go-to for people to try to shut down, uh, you know, public public demonstration and public anger. She did make that per uh, that uh, that uh, what's the word I'm looking for metaphor. Yeah, she described some of these activists as being the same as January 6th insurrection, and not just her. Paul also sent out Paul sent out a, a fundraiser saying the same thing, fundraising email. So the disdain that they have for their constituents in regards to poverty is pretty shocking. And I think it's shocking more so for people that live outside of California because we are seen as such a blue progressive state. But again, we have, you know, a group of wealthy elites in the state and in the city, and they do, um, they do control a lot of the politicians here. And real estate develop, developer money is at the top of that. You know, we've mm-hmm. seen why we have such a small stock of affordable housing. It's because of the real estate de- developer money. They hire lobbyists. The lobbyists, you know, give donations, they package donations, give donations to these various candidates. They get these land entitlement exceptions to uh, building codes. I mean, it's just this never-ending circle of corruption with our city Mm -hmm. council. So, you know, Jose uh, Huizar, which he's under indictment now by the FBI, I think he's just the tip of the iceberg. 
It is uh, gratifying to see that progressive candidates, as you were saying, had had such success in the um, recent primaries. So maybe that is a trend that we can hope will continue. Tina, we've got to let you go. But this was Tina Desiree Berg. You can um, see her reporting on Status Quo. But I also think that you have just dropped a new episode of the District 34 podcast. Do you want to tell our listeners what you guys are talking about? Yeah, so this is a very interesting uh, conversation. So there's a candidate, her name is maybe a girl. If she wins this congressional race, she will be the first trans congressperson. Um, she is challenging Adam Schiff from the left. He ran the first time in 2020 and was in, uh, during the primary, was almost on his tail. It was less than 1% difference in votes. So I mm-hmm. think has a really good chance here. So it'll be interesting to see where this race goes. Adam Schiff, as you know, is a darling of the Democratic Party because of his national security stances, because of the stances he's taken on Donald Trump and whatnot. But he is a very conservative guy. And this district that he is in, you know, it's a Silver Lake, partially Echo Park. So there's a lot of progressive neighborhoods within his district. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm very curious to where this goes, but I did interview uh, maybe a girl a very interesting interview. She knows her stuff, knows her policies. So, uh, yeah, that just got released uh, yesterday. Fantastic. All right, go check it out, everybody. Bring down Adam Schiff from the left. That would be so terrific. Tina Desiree Berg, we're going to let you go. I'm sure we will talk to you again soon. And we're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come right back with some more news and politics from all over the place. We're live in D.C. We're on Radio Sputnik, and we'll be right back. to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. The Russian gas giant Gazprom warned today that gas prices in Europe could jump another 60% this winter as production continues to fall amid Western sanctions. Russian gas exports to the European Union are already down more than 36% this year, and wholesale prices are up almost 500% in the same period. Finland announced yesterday that it would cut the number of Russian visas that it issues by 90%. Exceptions will be made for journalists, dissidents, and activists. The Czech Republic, Poland, Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania are mirroring the Finnish decision, but Germany is refusing to reduce the number of Russian visas. The Washington Post editorial board published a piece today reminding Americans that the FBI is not the problem in this country. The piece says that it goes without saying that FBI personnel are dedicated, patriotic public servants. But Donald Trump is perverting all that. The Post goes on to paint a very rosy picture of an organization that for decades has abused the civil rights and civil liberties of millions of Americans. And the Post confirms today something that we told you about last week. Donald Trump is not able to find attorneys willing to represent him. The Post says that literally every major Republican-oriented A-list law firm in Washington and New York has turned down the former president. Why? Because he's out of control, he won't do as he's told, and he doesn't pay his bills. We're joined by journalist and writer Dan Lazar. He's going to help us work through all this information. Welcome back, Dan. Uh, Thanks for having me, John. Dan, let's start with gas prices. Europe is reeling with the price of gas right now. And as if that's not bad enough, 
the Europeans are going to have to brace for 60% increase in natural gas and heating oil prices come winter. This could be enough to push the entire European Union into recession. And it's all because of the decision to sanction the Russian gas industry. So how do the Europeans navigate what looks like it is going to be a very difficult winter? Well, they're going to uh, face a real political crunch. I mean, uh, the I mean, German industry is uh, is is directly threatened, uh, and German workers are going to pay an enormous price, uh, and for reasons they don't really fully understand. And therefore, I think that those in charge of the country will um, will suffer the consequences. I mean, people will get very upset. They'll get very um, impatient with the tired old formulas, uh, you know, advanced by the ruling elite, and they will demand change. Mm-hmm. Uh, exactly what what kind of demands they will issue is unclear. I mean, in Italy, we're we're seeing a uh, uh, a, a neo fascist, you know, poised to become prime minister. Yeah. So uh, so it's possible that they, it could take that form in uh, in Germany as well. But certainly, um, uh, there's going to be a huge political showdown as a consequence. There was a little kerfuffle in the news yesterday when the media reported that India has been exporting Russian gas without saying that it originated in Russia. I honestly can't imagine that many people care where their gas comes from so long as it's affordable and available. Do you think this might be how countries are going to get through the winter by buying gas on the gray market and then? Selling it? it? It's very hard to say. I mean, I mean, first of all, it depends on where prices go. I mean, oil prices are actually falling. They have fallen 26% since their peak yes. about three months ago, I guess it was. Um, and, uh, and, and, and gas prices are rising, natural gas prices, of course. Uh, they're rising um, due to the, the, um, the sanctions imposed on Russia and Russia's retaliation uh, be uh, uh, holding back ga- uh, gas prices, but it's just I, I assume that the war will continue. I assume that Russia will continue holding back gas prices, and I assume, therefore, that we will see a bifurcation where oil prices fall, but gas prices can, uh, continue to rise. Uh, but it's you know it's very hard to tell because you know the energy markets are sort of unified to a certain degree. And uh, and these two these two energy commodities can't sort of can't behave in opposite ways forever. So we'll see what happens. But I think that uh, we'll see a lot of gray markets developing. We will see a lot of, uh, of high level finagling going on um, as countries try to make do under these new circumstances. Yeah. European unity seems to be fraying a little on this Russian visa issue. A handful of countries are slashing visas available to Russians, as I noted in the uh, in the intro. Bulgaria and Greece have expelled dozens of Russian diplomats, uh, accusing them of conduct unbecoming a diplomat, uh, which is a euphemism for spying. But other countries like Germany and Hungary are refusing to do the same. What's the purpose, do you think, of slashing Russian visas? It seems to me that the only harm uh, will be to the tourist industry, but not much else. Uh, you know, you go to go to Greece, go to Cyprus, go to Italy, and there are Russians everywhere spending spending their money. 
Well, I mean, I see it as pure, as purely vindictive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, and, and an example of how the war is like, is like so confused. I mean, I mean, who is the enemy here? Is the enemy Vladimir Putin or is the enemy, you know, Russia or the Russian people? And we're getting mixed signals here. Uh, you know, some people like Germany insist it's merely Vladimir Putin and Germany for obvious historical reasons, is un, is reluctant to declare a crusade against the Russian people. Um, uh, but, you know, other countries are not, are not quite so scrupulous. I mean, Bulgaria mm-hmm. is going through political turmoil these days. Uh, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not an expert in Bulgarian politics, but I imagine that has something, something to do with the, uh, with the, uh, the revocation of, of visas. Um, but uh, you know, and Germany, for the same reason, is, is you know is, is a little reluctant to be to be too militant on this question, and Hungary, of course, uh, uh, is you know is 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 probably the most sympathetic country yeah. in Europe to uh, to Russia's uh, you know Russia's concerns. So um so so yeah, but but these these differences will play out. More and more, the longer this war goes on, because the the, the more the longer it goes on, the more the economic sanctions uh, bite, the worse the economic blowback becomes. The the greater the dissension, debate, you know, uh, will you know will will become as well. Um, and so therefore, you know, people, I mean, people don't understand how this happened. Right. I mean, I mean. We we have you know we have the entire Western press you know virtually speaking as one saying it's you know it's all Vladimir Putin's fault. You know yeah. he is the devil incarnate. He has created this horrible situation. Vladimir Putin must go, as George Bush said back in a uh, back in I think it was March in uh, in, in Warsaw. Mm-hmm. You know and um and you know and so. But that that explanation clearly doesn't make sense. I mean, clearly, no. I mean, no individual wields that kind of power, and you know, and it completely, you know, absolves NATO of any responsibility for contributing to the, to this disaster. Yes. Which and NATO obviously bears great responsibility for setting the stage. You know, and so 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 people are aware of that. I mean, I mean, the average person knows that. The average person is smart enough not to not to to, to swallow whole this propaganda line being, you know, put forth by the press. So the average the average person knows the situation is more complex that he or she is not being given the full story, and therefore that you know that that realization you know sets the stage for some kind of populist revolt mm-hmm. as these people see their jobs disappearing their factories closing their heating belt bills shooting through the roof etc they just don't trust their politicians and with good reason because they are not giving them the full story yeah yeah i think that's right uh, hey, let's talk about the FBI for a minute. Uh, the Washington Post, being the the good neoliberal hometown uh, paper that it is, took it upon itself today to remind us how great the FBI is. Uh, it was in this morning's paper. The narrative was everything is Donald Trump's fault, but this is the organization that has entrapped countless Muslims and others, really, since the 9-11 attacks. It's targeted whistleblowers for Espionage Act prosecutions. Entire books have been written about its abuses over the years, and now the Post is casting the FBI as the good guys. 
So I want to ask you first, to what end is the post doing this? And second, I want to point out that just since the show started, uh, Mike Pence has come out and made an identical statement specifically in reference to the raid on Donald Trump's home at Mar-a-Lago. Pence said in the last hour that we need to respect the FBI and allow the FBI to do its job. What do you think? I mean, first of all, number one, the the dual demonization of of uh, Donald Trump and and Vladimir Putin is really fascinating. I mean, I mean, neocon ideology has you know has sort of fixated on these two figures as the as this kind of this 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 double fountain of evil, you know, just just spewing out you know just spewing out bad stuff on the world at large. Everything would be would be perfect if. Vladimir Putin was overthrown, and if Donald Trump was thrown in jail, yeah. then you know, then we'd have the uh, you know, you know the, the the sun that the clouds would part, the sun would shine, you know, uh, <laughs> birds would 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 sing, uh, angels would you know would uh, would would. It, with halos would appear, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and, and it's it's just ridiculous. And and the I mean, not only does the FBI have a have a long history of, of abusive behavior going back to J. Edgar Hoover, but you know, it was just uh five or six years ago mm-hmm. that the FBI threw American politics into utter turmoil. Was it due to its gross yeah. mishandling yeah. of the whole Russian collusion episode? And and gross, I mean. I mean, you know, I mean the 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 the, the elevation of the of the steel dossier into something reputable and, and good coin. I mean, you know, it was completely bizarre, uh, bizarre. It was a thinly veiled attempt to drive Trump out of office. Um and uh you know, and, and 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 we still have never gotten the full story as to why. Yeah, I think it was January January eleventh, two thousand seventeen. Why Jim Comey, the the director of the FBI, you know, confronted Trump in Trump Tower ten days before he was due to take the oath of office with the revelations of the Steele dossier. We just yeah. don't know it. And and that act, and clearly someone then leaked the dossier to the press or gave the the press. The, the heads up that they, they could feel free to publish this dossier. You know, it was a, a classic destabilization Absolutely. that that has never been fully explained. Yes, yes, and John, I, I, I imagine that you have a professional knowledge uh, as to how these things work that, that, I, that I clearly lack. Um, you know, I like to think and, I have and, the inside uh, scoop. Right. <laughs> and you know, right, another and, you know, thing— and, and so, this is this is just a little a little aside. You know, uh, Christopher Ray, the director of the FBI, he was confirmed by the Senate uh, uh, by a vote of ninety five. I'm sorry, ninety two to five, and the five no votes were all Democrats. Every single Republican voted for him. We forget that. Yes. So. So, so the, so the wars, so the war is, is continuing. I mean, American government is an ongoing, ongoing process of, of breakdown, of incipient civil war. I mean, January sixth is continuing in different forms, uh, and you know, and the and and Donald Trump is painting this 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 raid on Mar-a-Lago as a continuation of the FBI campaign to you know to bring him down. Is it true? Uh, is was is Merrick Garland really lending 
himself to that. Uh, and then, I mean, Garland is the is the ultimate straight shooter, the yeah. middle of the roader. He's so, I mean, middle middle of the roaders regard him as like you know unduly centrist. And so, uh, yeah. and so, it's it's hard to believe, but but given this pattern of behavior, uh, the Trump narrative certainly strikes many people as not implausible. So Republicans are lining up, you know, you know, some Republicans are lining up behind the FBI, just as many Republicans lined up yep. behind Nancy Pelosi's disastrous trip to uh, Taiwan. That's right. And and Trump and Trump is staking a, a position for himself, which is anti-FBI, anti-Pelosi, um, and uh, is kind of occupying a kind of a, a special zone on the on the right. Which is all his territory, and uh, and I think it's actually tactically perhaps a smart move on his part, mm-hmm. because the more the the mainstream Republicans become embroiled in this complete FBI mess, uh, the, the greater Trump's ability to to attack it from outside as a whole. Does that make sense to you, yeah. John? Yeah, sure does. <laughs> Yeah, I think you're right. Hey, another uh, piece in the Post says very pointedly that Trump is finding it nearly impossible to find attorneys. The man simply does not follow his attorney's advice. There was even one story in this in this article today saying that um, he was meeting with his attorneys in the Oval Office and they said, don't tweet about X, Y and Z, whatever it was. Don't tweet about it. And then they said before they even got off the White House grounds, he had tweeted about it. Well, if your client is telling a lie as an officer of the court, you have to correct that lie. So now nobody is willing to represent him. So uh, they said they're they're not willing to suborn perjury. Um, they uh, they are unable to convince him to take their advice and he has this reputation for not paying his bills. He's legendary about it. Now he's stuck with with this talking head from the the One America News Network whom one of the attorneys in this article described as a little girl with no experience and a couple of former US attorneys or assistant assistant US attorneys. There are a million of them out there. What effect do you think this is going to have going forward? Are his attorneys going to be outclassed? by prosecutors and by congressional investigating committee members? Well, I mean, I mean, first of all, number one, not paying his bills. That's the real problem as far as lawyers. Oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think that, 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 that the other stuff is, is really secondary. But, the, you know, the bottom line is you got to pay your bills. Otherwise, lawyers start you know, heading for the exits. And then Trump is a notorious goniff. I yeah. mean, I, I, I know people, I know individuals who themselves have been stiffed by Trump. You know, uh, the contractors who did work on his projects and never got paid. I mean, his his reputation yeah. in New York is just is just oh, it's legendary. Yeah, he's a yeah, he's a thief. He's a yeah, he's, he's a thief. A, thief. A, That's a, right. He's a thief. Yeah, um, but um, but uh, as a question, as, as the other question, I mean, Trump is a is a bad client, um, and and clearly so. But that has not done him any harm politically. Right. In fact. Right. It's this loose cannon aspect, which has probably benefited him. I mean, I mean, uh, 
a certain point, a certain portion of the population, 30 percent, 35 percent hardcore Trump supporters are so, you know, PO'd yep. at the way things are rolling, going. They want they want a bull in the China shop. They want yes. someone who will wreck stuff. OK, and totally and, agree. And so and, 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 and so so therefore, like, you know, and, and I, I think that, that that Trump needs to be able to continue this wrecking ball act, which is why he's a bad client. Uh, and, uh, and, and lawyers have, have got to continually scramble to, you know, to, to apologize for all the bad things he does, you know, all the, all the lies he tells and the, the silly stories and stuff. But, um, I just don't say, I, I, I think that politically there's method in this madness. And I think that, um, that, it, it, while it's very hard to tell, I think that so far it, it may work to his benefit. I mean, certainly his, 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 his grip on the Republican Party has only tightened, right? I, I mean, the, 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 primaries, the primaries show that the mm-hmm. Trump's grip on the party faithful is as strong, if not stronger than ever. I mean, a Mike Pence, you know, wields no power. Uh, Ron DeSantis, I think, is, you know, is a... a, a will be gone in a few months. Uh, and I think that I think that Trump is the is the is the king or the or the the duce or the Fuhrer of the Republican Party. Yes. Uh, so we'll, so we'll see what happens. And everything depends on what happens in November. And uh, and we'll see in November as to whether Trump's strategy is working or whether his craziness is bringing the Republicans uh, down. Yeah. You know, 10 of the 12 Republican House members who voted to impeach Trump have either lost or they've elected to retire and not run for reelection. Ten out of the twelve. So, you know, it it seems like the Republican rank and file don't care what the FBI says about Trump or what the Washington Post says about Trump. Uh, We said earlier in the show that Liz Cheney was crushed yesterday in her reelection uh, bid, but I th- I think you're right. I think that that that's why the Democrats right now are so focused on getting Trump indicted, not even necessarily convicted, but indicted, so that he can't run for reelection. But then that that runs a risk of its own, right? You risk this uprising among uh, among Republicans who are going to see this as practically an act of war, don't you think? Well, I, th- I think it, I think it's not practically an act of war. I think there is a some kind of war going on. Yeah, I mean, I think January January sixth, twenty twenty one, was an outright you know was the Fort Sumter. Yeah, right. uh, and I and I think that the, that there is some kind of conflict. You know, we're 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 in the bleeding Kansas stage, uh, and. Um, and uh, uh, and I think, therefore, you know, when the when the when the, when the FBI, you know, uh, you know, raids Mar-a-Lago, that's just you know that the Republican faithful see that as an act of war, and the Democratic faithful see it the same way. Yeah. And you know, and so therefore, I mean, so therefore, all it does is it causes you know both sides to, you know, to load up, you know, to uh, and to and to level their their rifles at one another. And at some point, you know, you know that the general shooting will start. I mean, I don't, I don't know what form it'll take. Uh, I mean, it will be an exact replay of, of 1861. Right. But nonetheless, we are heading towards some kind of fundamental, you know, 
conflict that will really shake the firmament. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I want to ask you, too, we were talking uh, in the last hour about uh, politics and and about uh, Liz Cheney, but I want to ask you about Alaska. Um, I, I was fascinated. I'm going to pull the numbers up right now. I was fascinated this morning when I woke up and I looked at the New York Times and I saw that uh, in this race for Alaska's one congressional seat, that Sarah Palin came in second. Now, they've got ranked choice voting in Alaska. It's very complicated. They had a primary in June. They had another primary today. Now, the top three vote getters are going to go onto the ballot in the November election. But um, uh, the, the numbers are Mary Peltola. 35%. This, this is to take a, a vacant congressional seat right now, today, or tomorrow. Uh, Peltola, 35, Palin, 31, and Nick Begich, 27. Um, in the at-large special election, uh, Peltola, 38, Palin, 32, and Begich, 29. Um, now, the interesting thing about Peltola is that she is a, a Yupik, um Native Alaskan, she would be the first Native Alaskan ever elected to uh, to Congress, which is kind of cool. I really uh, I, I I could get excited about that. But she's a Democrat, and it's extraordinarily rare for a Democrat to win uh, a statewide race in Alaska. Every once in a while, there's a Democrat that that becomes senator or an independent that becomes governor. But does this say more about Sarah Palin? Does it say more about this Democrat being like the one special person who could actually pull it off? What what kind of lesson should we take from this this race? It seems fascinating to me, and I'm not exactly sure why it's so fascinating. I, you know, John, I, I it's just very hard to tell. I mean, I, it really is. I, I mean, uh, yeah, and and things are we're really in sort of in a in a in a. A moment of a moment of flux. Yeah, I mean, Joe Biden's had a has had a couple of good weeks. Okay, he's looked up pretty well. And uh, gasoline prices are falling, oil prices are falling, uh, and so therefore, you know, econ- you know, the economy for the moment is looking somewhat better. Uh, I, I think this is just a, a passing stage, but nonetheless, that, that's the way the things appear now. Um, and uh, and then, then there's the fact about Republican craziness. And um, and I think that, that you know, the, the question is whether Republican craziness, and then, you know, given Joe Biden's two, not two semi-decent weeks, whether that Republican craziness is going just too far, whether it'll just like, no, alienate the broad center too hopelessly. Um, and the and and the and whereas Trump might, you know, might thoroughly, you know, thoroughly controls the Republican Party. Yeah. The question is whether the, the party itself winds up shrinking relative to the electorate as a whole. Um, you know, it's, it reminds me of, of what happened in, in California uh, in the 90s and aughts. I mean, you remember Remember how the California budgeting system works, and you have to have a uh, two thirds of the, uh, both houses of the state legislature must approve any kind of a uh, uh, any kind of budget. 
to the yeah. state budget, yep. therefore giving one-third of, of either House, one-third plus, veto power. Right. And the Republicans, even though they, they were the minority party, wielded this power absolutely ruthlessly and, you know, and, and completely stopped the California government uh, you know, in its tracks. And then it just, they just went too far. And they just, they just they overplayed their hand, and they wound up being smashed. Now, yeah. now California, in other words, the Republican uh, California Republicans have are vastly diminished. It's one of the solidest Democratic states in the in the yeah. in the country. So, so, the, so, so, my question is: Is there a possibility of something similar happening on and happening on a? national basis with Republicans wind up uh, uh, overplaying their hands. They, they just, they, they just, you know, they, they, they use their minority powers to bring the Senate to a halt, to bring the, uh, the White House to a halt. They just get crazier and crazier and crazier until some kind of tipping point is reached. Yeah. And the, and the broad center reasserts itself. Now, that's what Democrats are hoping and praying yes. will happen. That's that's why they're that's why they promote Liz Cheney, who is now that was now seen as a centrist, even though she crazy. the, the family is, was <laughs> once crazy, right? You know, but um, but that's what Democrats are hoping and praying will happen. Um, uh, so that's the that's the chemistry they're wishing for. Uh, um, it's not impossible. Uh, I still am putting my money on the Republicans, not because I want them to win, but because I think they'll they'll be like. Yeah. One last quick question for you. Uh, we we see uh, these very very early uh, presidential preference polls. Donald Trump is around fifty percent, sometimes a little bit more, sometimes a little bit less. Uh, DeSantis is usually in the low to mid twenties and everybody else is in low single digits. Pompeo at two, Cruz at two, Rubio at one. There are a bunch of people that, you know, that are polling zero like Josh Hawley. Um, what do you think about Mike Pence? It seems like he's been very quietly diligent about trying to extricate himself from Donald Trump's grasp. Uh, he's been he's been clear that he did the right thing on January 6th and Trump did the wrong thing. He hasn't criticized Trump over his hang Mike Pence comment. Um, and he's it, it seems to me like he's trying to to make himself look like the adult in the in the Republican Party's room. Do you think that there's any hope for for Mike Pence in the Republican primaries? I, I can't see it myself. I really can't. I mean, the guy is uh, the the guy is. Uh, I, I I don't think he has anything like Trump's appeal. Yeah. I mean, look, Trump's appeal is to the is to the is to the is to the re- rebellious. Yeah, it's guy. the angry white guy. The, the angry, the angry. But also, by the way, let's be fair. A lot of angry uh, Hispanic males yeah. and a surprisingly True. surprisingly large number of uh, angry black males. Uh, yeah, I mean, and, he increased um, you know, his support among yeah. non-white people yeah, between yeah. the first election and the second, right? Yeah, so. he did. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and with Hispanics, it was quite dramatic. Uh, but with 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 uh, with black men, it was actually pretty striking, pretty significant. I'm uh-huh. still very small, but 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 significant. Yeah. Um, so he's the re- he's the rebellious right. He's the first. 
the first guy who ever entered the White House with never, never, ever holding an elective office before. And that was an asset because people are so sick of the mess in Washington that that was, you know, that that was actually seen as something positive. And conversely, you know, I mean, I mean, this is why governors, this is why this is why the Democrats are looking to Newsom, because he's a governor, not part of the Washington mess. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also why DeSantis, another governor, seems to have an edge over guy, people like Cruz, right. you know, who are just part of the same swamp. Um, so uh, so I think, you know, I think I think governors and outsiders have uh, have advantages uh, and the fact that that Joe Biden is the consummate insider uh, is a, is actually more of a disadvantage, as far as I can tell. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's why I think you see Cruz, you know, Cruz and Pompeo down there in the, in, you know, with, with at the one or two percent level. Yeah. Um, and uh, and that's that's why I think Trump continues to to dominate the uh, the Republican scene. Okay, we'll leave it there. That was the voice of Dan Lazar. He's a journalist and writer. We are happy that he joined us. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned, and we'll be right back. Fits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here in, well, I'm not in the studio with Michelle Witte, but I'm here with Michelle Witte, and that's always nice. The Biden administration yesterday canceled $3.9 billion in student debt associated with ITT Technical Institute, which defrauded hundreds of thousands of people. The debt forgiveness zeroes out student debt for 208,000 former ITT students, something the administration promised to do 18 months ago. To date, the White House claims that it has approved the cancellation of $32 billion in student loans, affecting 1.6 million borrowers. In other education news, public school districts around the country are desperately short of teachers, with some districts beginning the school year with only 50% of the teachers they need. That means bigger classes and less one-on-one time. In Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis is facing the teacher shortage by making it easier for veterans to obtain teaching certificates. That means they don't have to have the same qualifications as trained and licensed teachers. And DeSantis says that he'll soon extend the same courtesy to police officers and other so-called first responders who want to moonlight as teachers. And finally, teachers in Columbus, Ohio, the largest school district in the state, may begin classes online only using substitutes and scabs, not because of COVID, but because teachers are likely to go on strike there in the coming days. They're seeking a three-year contract, 8% annual pay increases, smaller class sizes, and get this, air conditioning. They don't even have air conditioning. We're joined now by longtime educator and activist Dr. Bill Ayers. He's a former professor of education at the University of Illinois at Chicago, where he held the titles of Distinguished Professor of Education and Senior University Scholar, and where he specialized in teaching social justice, urban education reform, narrative and interpretive research, and children in trouble with the law. Bill, it's always so great to have you. Welcome back. 
Nice to hear you, John, and nice to see you, Michelle. Bill, let's start with student debt. This is such an important issue. Student debt, as you know, cannot be written off in a bankruptcy, thanks to an act by Congress a few years back. And many students and recent college graduates carry hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt from student loans. The Biden administration says that it has addressed this by canceling billions of dollars in student debt. Um, First of all, has this really happened or is it some sort of a sleight of hand? Well, it's happened for some people and it's the beginning, but it's far from it. And the ideology that undergirds it is all wrong. In other words, we really need is public education accessible to the people. That's what we need to sustain any kind of hope for a democratic society and civic participation in that society. So the goal of public education is not simply job training. The goal is to you know allow people to become fully developed human beings participating in the public square. So Biden's promise to do away with student debt has has not been met, and we have to demand that it be met. And the other thing, though, John, to point out is, why is it that so many students are up to their necks? And yeah. Why are they chained to the banks for 20, 30, 40 years after graduating from college? I'm still paying off debt from one of my my kids uh, that, that happened 15, 20 years ago. I mean, it's an outrage, and what we ought to demand and are demanding, really, is free, open public education, um, open admissions, and so that people can have access to an education that they need in order to live a full and uh, productive life. Mm-hmm. I think you're exactly right. Let, let, me, let me just add that Please. it really is that, that the reason that, that the administrations get handcuffed on this is that the debt business is a big business for the banks. And just think of how... how powerful it is that millions and millions of students are tied to this owing huge amounts of interest and so on. And so so our slogan should be cancel the debt, free and open public education. I'm thinking for a minute about the fact that I went to a public school. I went to the University of Michigan. And as an out-of-state student coming from Chicago, I paid just under $400 for tuition. Oh, my God. Public school actually funded by the public. Michigan now costs in the range of $20,000 a year for, for tuition. How can that be? Well, it's because we've done away with the public and public education. We need to demand that public education belongs to the people. You know, I participated in a demonstration at the end of my freshman year of college because tuition was being raised by 25%, I still remember this, to $4,600. And I said, I can't possibly afford $4,600 to, to, to go to school. And now it's $62,000 for a semester, uh, including room and board. Um, and, and you've anticipated my, my next question. Federal help in canceling student debt is, is great. The idea is great, but it doesn't address the basic problem that First of all, colleges and universities are so grossly overpriced that most students have no recourse but to take out these these loans. And there doesn't seem to be much in the way of of an alternative, like a viable community college uh, that's available to people. Bernie Sanders certainly talked about this during his presidential campaigns, but we haven't seen any kind of federal action. Is there a solution out there? 
think there is, and I think we ought to point out, I agree with your analysis of what the underlying cause is. I think we should point out that most universities, most universities in the United States today, have a simple business model, and that is to attract more wealthy foreign yeah. students who can pay full tuition. Absolutely. When you think about it. Um, and so Michigan, University of Illinois, University of Chicago, all have a business model based on full tuition payment by students who are wealthy from other countries. Um, it, it's, it's really a disaster. But I think this is the, the solution really is to go to the root, and there are two roots we ought to be, your listeners ought to be thinking about. One is, is education a public good? Is it a human right? If it is, right. we have to get away from the ideology that education is a product to be sold at the marketplace. That includes K-12 education, and it includes college and university education. If it's a human right, we have a responsibility as a country, as a nation, as a community, to fund education fully. That's one problem. The second problem that we're facing is for decades, public education has been under a sustained attack from the right. That attack has taken the form of... um, Privatizing the public space, it's taken the form of reducing education to a simple uh, singular metric on a test, and it's it's been in place around vilifying teachers and destroying any collective voice of educators. These are three pillars of the attack on public education. You started by talking about teacher shortages. This is a result of that attack, and it's a it's a it's a wing in that attack. We have to hold up public school teachers as the important critical workers that they are. We have to allow them to develop a powerful, vibrant public voice when it comes to issues like teaching and learning. We have to pay them and, and respect them in accordance to the role they play in society. Mm-hmm. These are big, big lifts for those of us who believe in a future for the public and for public education. Yeah. I think that's right. Most states around the country are suffering from teachers, uh, teacher shortages, severe teacher shortages in some cases. The solution seems obvious to me. Uh, and tell me if I'm wrong. We need to pay teachers more. We need to improve their working conditions, make class sizes smaller, and offer continuing education incentives. Why aren't our elected officials seeing this? Or perhaps they're seeing it. Why? Maybe the better question is, why are they not acting on it? I think they're not acting on it because we're in a giant struggle about whether there ought to be public education. And the right wing, as in so many other arenas, has got the upper hand by making a narrative that's fundamentally false. But the shortage of teachers to then say, well, if you're a veteran, you're qualified. Right. If you're a police officer or a National Guards person, this is entirely crazy. <laughs> you're right need to pay teachers more because of the work they do is so profoundly important and so excruciatingly difficult. But we also need to offer them respect due to professionals who actually have to have some control, as other professionals do, over the content and conduct of their work. That means all the attacks by people like DeSantis and the ability for a teacher to choose what to teach, to make learning and teaching decisions based on their own experience and their own professional knowledge. Undermining this 
is driving people away from teaching. Why would you go into teaching if you know you're going to be disrespected, underpaid, overworked, under-resourced? You wouldn't do it. And that's why we see a million people last year leaving teaching, leaving education, and that's what we have to do to solve it. It's a big, big problem and a big lift. Yeah. Um, again, you've anticipated what I was going to say. This, this plan in Florida is uh, crazy to me, too. Uh, veterans, cops, and others uh, aren't qualified to teach just because they're cops and, and veterans and first responders. It's another example to me of not addressing the root of the problem. The problem isn't that it's too hard to become te- a teacher, and so we need to make it easier. The problem is that pay, benefits, and working conditions are lousy. Uh, what are some of the solutions that you're hearing about out there, or are you hearing about any states or even districts that are that are trying to fix this problem? Let me first say, pay, benefit, and working conditions, yes, you're right. But the other thing, when you point to Florida, we have to point out, is the undermining of the ability of a teacher to teach. Yes. In other words, if you pass a bill, HB7 in Florida, that bars teachers from talking about racism or white supremacy, how the hell can you teach? You mean, I'm I'm supposed to be a teacher, I'm going to be underpaid, overworked, the class is going to be too big, I'm going to have too few resources, and on top of that, you're telling me I can't teach reality. I can't tell the truth. So, uh, you know, HB7 combined with uh, Don't Say Gay Bill in Florida means that a a self-respecting human being would say, well, I can't teach in a place where I can't honest with my students. What's the point of it? I'm not a clerk. So I, I, I have a mind. I have a spirit. Teaching is fundamentally intellectual and ethical work. Do I see places where people are solving the problem? Not systematically. Mm. have to fight for. And that, that means, among other things, we have to to the fact that teaching is soundly intellectual and ethical work. It takes a caring and thinking person to do it well. And that means we have to reward teachers appropriately, and we cannot continue to uh, disparage teachers and disparage teaching and expect that folks are going to go into it. Over the past several years, Bill, we've seen teacher strikes in large districts around the country, and indeed, in some cases, entire states. Uh, We've talked to you over the years about strikes in North Carolina, West Virginia, Kansas, elsewhere. It's still happening, and we now expect a large-scale teacher strike to take place in Columbus, Ohio. Why is it, do you think, that so many districts fail to to plan when it comes to teachers' contracts? Why is it that so many districts think they can get away with just kicking the can farther down the road, even when they know it's going to hurt our children in the long run? I think state legislators that are dominated by right-wing uh, lawmakers uh, find some glee in this situation. That is, they want to say teachers are clerks, teachers are um, low-level workers. They could be working in McDonald's or teaching in kindergarten. The reality is, so, so they say, um, we don't care that you're underpaid. We don't care that you uh, have the classes are too large, and so on. And that's what's happening in Ohio. But I think that I think that in the long run, what parents and teachers 
seeing and fighting for is that teaching is so much more than a job that you clock into mm-hmm. and you get paid for. What we saw the Chicago teacher strike was such a model um, several years ago where people were only allowed by law in the state of Illinois to go on strike for wages and benefits. And the teacher strike that went on for a month raised every issue, arts in the, in the classroom, um, the need for a full arts program, the need to think of education as more than a reduction to a test score, and so on. So people were raising the right things because it was a social movement. We need that social movement mm-hmm. to continue to power uh, our ideas about what education should be. It's not a simple contract issue. It's a question much larger than that. What is the role of schools in a free society? How do we develop free self you know, uh, self-governing uh, human beings. And that's something that is much bigger than any given contract. Mm-hmm. Bill, uh, how are things going for the big teachers unions around the country? The AFL-CIO is reporting that their memberships have stopped dropping and are leveling off. And we know that there have been increases in union memberships in service industries and some notable victories at places like Amazon, Apple, Starbucks, But what about the National Education Association and the American Federation of Teachers? How are things going for them? Well, I think that these are really troubling times. And I think if you think of the who were impacted most powerfully uh, by the pandemic, certainly frontline workers, service workers, but teachers, students, and families were hugely impacted. And we haven't begun to recover from that, and we, we are still in it. Mm-hmm. But I think that I think the, a group like the Chicago Teachers Union shows us a way forward. You're right, the victories with Amazon and Starbucks are very exciting. Also the nurses, also the domestic workers, and also teachers. Yeah. These are female-dominated professions. These are um, places where very smart and militant leadership has shown us a path forward. And so I'm hopeful that both the teachers unions uh, combined with other um, other recent actions in labor are pointing a new way forward. And frankly, uh, I would say we are living, John, on a razor's edge. Mm. We could go full authoritarian and fascist very easily, but it's also a time of great opportunity, great possibility. Yeah. We have to seize that and run with it. Bill, one last question. Uh, There was a piece in the New York Post yesterday about this uh, Minnesota teachers contract that calls for white teachers to be laid off first if there were going to be uh, layoffs and that teachers who were people of color would would be the last to be laid off. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Is is this uh, true? And uh, is it an idea that's specific to uh, Minneapolis? Is this is this more of a trend? I haven't seen the, the article you're referring to, nor do I know the Minnesota situation. But I would say there's a deeper question here, and that is, how do we attract and maintain um, African-American teachers in particular? Our public school t- population is moving and more overwhelmingly black and brown mm-hmm it's ever been, and the teaching core is more digitally white than it's ever been. We need to find creative and smart ways to address that. That means attracting and holding um, young African-American 
folks who want to teach and giving them the opportunity to teach and the opportunity to hold on to them. But, you know, as is so often the case in situations like you're describing, it's very easy for the bosses, in this case, the state legislatures or the school boards, people against each other. And that's not what we need. But we do need to recognize, and I think Chicago Teachers Union Teachers in the Chicago Teachers Union do recognize the priority of hiring and training mm-hmm. Americans to teach you know, in a system that's largely African-American. That's right. Dr. Bill Ayers, thank you for joining us. Uh, Bill Ayers is a longtime educator and activist. He's a former professor of education at the University of Illinois at Chicago, where he held the titles of Distinguished Professor of Education and Senior University Scholar, and where he specialized in teaching social justice urban educational reform, narrative and interpretive research, and children in trouble with the law. You're listening to Political Misfits. We're going to skip our next break. You know, it's funny, uh, Michelle, when you started off the show almost two hours ago, you said that there was so much going on that we were going to have trouble fitting it all in. And the same thing happened yesterday. We, we couldn't fit in all the news today. Yeah. Well, the show's over in nine minutes, and there's still a lot to talk about. I have some <laughs> updates. Yeah, I have a, I have more good news that I don't want to to go unremarked upon, and I have an update on a story that we've been following. Uh, the good news, you know, you can say this is a small thing, but it, we mentioned it on the show when the um, bill was first passed in Scotland, huh? um, and as of this week. Scotland became uh, the first country, the first law, the first law of its kind has come into force to make menstrual products available for free in public facilities. So it started on Monday. Um, The law was passed back in the end of 2020. And it's, you know, called a victory, a victory in the movement against period poverty. Because I think people, people who don't have to buy these products to be able to leave their houses for a week every month, don't realize how expensive they are. And you can't really walk around, look, you can't walk around bleeding, right? So I do think these are not correctly classed as luxury products. They are necessities and they should be available in public restrooms. Like you have toilet paper available or a sink to wash your hands in. And so I think that this is, I think that this is really cool. Um, the story, a story about this also notes um, that the UK uh, in 2021 abolished uh, its 5% tax rate on menstrual products, and uh, it joined a handful of countries that have mm-hmm. zero tax added to menstrual products. Uh, some U.S. states, although not the U.S. at large, Canada, India, Australia, and Kenya. So, I mean, I think it's important to note this, right? I think this is pro- process yes. or progress. Um, certainly, you know, when you were talking about people who are living in more extreme poverty, you know, this becomes a barrier to education. It becomes a barrier to employment. It becomes a, you know, a barrier to full participation in a lot of life. And so, you know, calling this something that is not, uh, shameful and a luxury to deal with, but rather just a, a human process, uh, that is visited on one half of the population, not the other, I think is, is a positive step. I wanted to say, too, that uh, the New York Times has uh, a review of Jared Kushner's new memoir. Oh, do Uh, they like it? uh, They called it soulless, boring, and lacking in self-awareness. Sounds like Jared Kushner. It's called Breaking History. Listen to this. This is just a short clip from it. it. It says, Kushner looks like a mannequin. 
and he writes like one. Kushner almost entirely ignores the chaos, the alienation of allies, the breaking of laws and norms, the flirtations with dictators, the comprehensive loss of America's moral leadership, and so on, ad infinitum, to speak about his boyish tinkering with issues that he was interested in. He goes on to speckle the book, which reads like a college admissions essay, with every drop of praise he's ever received, larded with cliches and glossed with selective biographical background. And the overall effect is off-putting and disgusting. That is, I want to write a book where I just list every nice thing everyone has ever said about me. I will say, New York Times, sorry, uh, America's moral leadership was not lost with the Trump administration. Stop trying to make us believe that. We all know what we've been doing for the last 50 years. That's right. So I take exception with that line. But the rest of it, I find uh, completely believable, John. But listen, this one last sentence. Because I read a lot of book reviews, right? I read a lot of books. I read a lot of reviews, especially in the New York Times. They're very, very professional and serious. Mm-hmm. The last sentence is, reading this book reminded me of watching a cat lick a dog's eye goo. Ooh, why? Have you, have you ever heard anything like that coming from the New York Times? No, but I also don't understand the metaphor. I don't understand the um, man. What is that called when the the uh, one uh, one thing is to another? Yeah, the analogy. Analogy. I don't. I don't get it. And I did very well in that part of the SATs. I mm, not enlightening for me that last bit. Wow. Hey, I have an update on a story that we've been following, which is of course the um, the Colorado River, yeah, dwindling, and the supplies at Lake Mead and Lake Powell uh, shrinking. There was a deadline this week for states to come up with a plan to reduce their own water reduction or water use uh, to avoid having the federal government step in and make a plan for them. Um, that deadline has come and gone, and the federal government has just sort of said, well, you guys can have a little bit more time. So we learned yesterday that there are going to be some small cuts, I mean, relatively small cuts. Uh, I think Arizona is going to lose more than 20% of the water it gets from the Colorado wow. River. So it sounds like a lot. It's not their only water source, but 20% is a chunk. But the Interior Department is going to cut water in relatively small amounts uh, for Arizona, Nevada, and Mexico. Uh, but these are these are amounts that were already agreed to a couple years ago, and they have kicked it back to the states to say, you guys have to come up with something. So for people who were hoping the federal government would step in with some kind of um, drastic, if realistic, plan to try to save uh, these uh, reservoirs and to try to help the Colorado River recover, that has not happened yet. It's just gone back to the states to try and figure things out on their own a little more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a couple of other uh, things, too. Uh Salman Rushdie, the the guy who who stabbed Salman Rushdie, we're finally getting a little picture of him. Oh, um, yeah. 26 years old, a loner. I mean, y- y- this story writes itself. Uh, he he's uh, he went to Lebanon in 2018 to visit visit his father. His parents are divorced. Came back radicalized. Mm-hmm. Uh, became a follower of uh, the Ayatollah Khamenei the spiritual leader of, of Iran didn't read satanic verses, but he says in an interview with the Washington, I'm I'm sorry, with the New York post of all things says that he watched a lot of YouTube videos about. Oh, that's always a good. Oh yeah. 
And then he just decided that Rushdie had to die. He expressed shock that Rushdie has lived and says he's very disappointed in that. Clearly, he's not following his lawyer's uh, uh, admonitions to keep his big mouth shut because this is going to be used against him. Too bad you were such a dumb, incompetent criminal. Did you also see this bit about his mom saying, I, yeah. I don't want anything I'm to done do with, with him. him. I've got nothing good to say about yeah. him. She said, I'm done with him. I'm done with yeah. him. She cut him off. She said that she's formally disowning him. Good. That, that she tried. She failed. He's on his own. He deserves He deserves no better. That's right. Um, and gl- good to hear that Salman Rushdie continues his uh, improvement. All right. I think we got to leave it there, John, but yep. we can leave it on a, on a good note. That is Salman right. Salman Rushdie pulling through and his would-be assassin's mom kicking her son <laughs> to the curb. What, well, really, what could be better? Uh, I want to say thanks, of course, to the guests that joined us today and to our producers and engineers. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to all of you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> 